browsing through a bookstore a few weeks ago, I was really struck by the proliferation of books on mindfulness. There was a book on mindful cooking, (laughs) mindful eating, mindful sex, mindful relationship, and I was particularly drawn to the 10-minute mindfulness workout book that was going to (laughs) change my life. And I really actually don't want to be too critical about this because, you know, I'm somewhat guilty myself of book writing proliferation. (laughs) And and I, I know that some of you here may at this moment be slightly cringing because you're cooking a book on mindfulness. Well done. And I was thinking that, you know, perhaps this proliferation really actually does point to a, a thirst in our culture to, to live a more wakeful life, a life less governed by habit and by confusion and by despair. And perhaps also on a deeper level, there's a, a growing recognition in our world, that to, to truly change the shape of our lives rests upon changing the shape of our minds and our hearts. And even perhaps there is some growing confidence that as human beings we, we have the capacity for a very deep understanding and change, that we have the capacity for a very genuine responsiveness and freedom, and developing that capacity lies in our hands. That it's not always about turning to an expert, but this development really does lie within us. Still, I think it's all too easy to get the impression that mindfulness is a solution for all ills. And we know this is not so. It's, it's perhaps also easy to get the impression that, that mindfulness is a kind of easy, quick fix or a solution or a shortcut to healing some of the challenges and difficulties that may have a very, very long history. And any of you, and many of you I know have, who have undertaken any kind of serious training in mindfulness or even undertaking this retreat, know that this is not a quick fix and know that it's not a solution. are probably acutely aware as the days go by of the levels of commitment and the levels of courage and patience and practice and effort that is involved in this process of waking up. I think it's also easy to get the impression that mindfulness is a technique or that it's something that you do. You know, and, and I hear this repeatedly. People tell me, oh, I do a little mindfulness. <laughs> and, and, you know, I think in the more classical teachings or the more classical presentations of 
mindfulness. It, it's very clear this is not something we do, that it's, it's not a technique. It's not a prescription. Instead, mindfulness is indeed pointing to a way of being in all moments of our life, a way of seeing, a way of abiding, that is imbued with clarity, imbued with wakefulness, with kindness, with understanding, a present moment recollection as we've described it. And that mindfulness does have an aim. And if we think of the aim of mindfulness, it's part of a tapestry of inner developments that are really dedicated to the cessation of, of bringing an end to all confusion and struggle and anguish and their causes, and to cultivate a liberated heart and mind. And this evening I'm going to cover some of the same ground that's already been covered, but I make no apology for repetition. The Buddha was really good at it. If I can be as good as the Buddha at repetition, it might just hope. So I'd like to shape this talk really around, I think, a very simple and profound teaching of mindfulness as a path to liberation that was offered by a scholar and a teacher called Nyanapanika Tara, I think who've truly made a significant contribution to understanding what mindfulness is and what mindfulness is not. And in this teaching, he really describes three interwoven elements of mindfulness that are quite indispensable to mindfulness being a liberating path. And these three elements are to know the mind, and being aware when we use the word mind in, in Buddhist psychology, mind and heart are interchangeable words, okay? We're not talking about two distinct experiences. Okay, so to know the mind, to shape the heart, to liberate the mind. And Chris was really touched upon this, I think, quite a lot last night, this quality of simply knowing not only what is happening, what is occurring in every moment of experience, but also what is happening, occurring within us in every moment of experience. In many ways, this, this quality of a simple knowing is really the starting point of the path. It's the starting point of the process of waking up. Nothing really can happen without this awareness. And Nyanapanika, I think, coined the phrase that you, some of you who teach or study mindfulness will be familiar with. It's also pretty much part of some meditative teaching, this phrase, bear attention. But John, who knew Nyanapanika, uh, told me that Nyanapanika almost immediately regretted coining this phrase, bear attention. Unfortunately, it got printed, so there's no taking it back. 
But it, the reason he regretted it is because it's clear to us all that there's really no such thing as bare attention. That attention is always flavored by something. And there's skillful attention and there's unskillful attention. A, a, a burglar has often very well-developed skills of attentiveness. You know, a safe cracker is remarkably attentive, you know. An athlete requires remarkable... You try doing uh, ski jumping without attention, you know, it's probably going to be a disaster. Um, is that what you call ski jumping, those big things they do? So attention can be skillful, it can be unskillful, but it's always flavored by something. And the kind of quality of simple knowing which lies... It's really the first step of mindfulness. It's something of a different creature. And it's a phrase that is repeated frequently through all the major texts on mindfulness development. And there's a little story. The Buddha's sometimes quite complex about this and sometimes quite straightforward about it. But there's a little story I'd like to read you that sort of illustrates this. It's called the recluse who couldn't wait. There was a recluse and that renowned as an enlightened man who came to a heartfelt realization that he was not, in fact, fully liberated. He thought the Buddha's teaching would help him and he traveled across India until he reached the Buddha's, where the Buddha was, was staying and asked to see the Buddha. He's on his begging round, he was told. Wait here and rest and you will see him soon. I can't wait, the man answered. I've come all this way. Show me where he is and I'll find him. So he set off for the city center and there he saw the Buddha going with his begging bowl from house to house. And the man fell to his knees and embraced the Buddha's feet. You are liberated, he said to the Buddha. Please teach me a practice that will bring liberation. Gladly, said the Buddha, but not here. This isn't the time or the place. Go to, go to where we're staying and wait for me. Now I can't possibly wait. It, it's such a, a short, in such a short time, I might die or you might die. Now, sir, this is the place. Please teach me now. The Buddha looked at him, and he realized that he really ought to tell him. <laughs> so he said, in the seeing, there is just the seeing. In the hearing, there is just the hearing. In the thinking, there is just the thinking. In the tasting and the touch, touching, just the tasting and the touching. That's it. Well, you've heard it, that's it. So in, in the Satipatthana that we have been touching upon, the most probably the most clear and dedicated sutta on the teaching of mindfulness, we, we hear this refrain all over and over again to simply know. It, it's, re, it's a primary repetition. To know the body is the body. To know feeling is feeling. To know mind is mind. To know mind process as mind process. To know the breathing as the breathing whether sitting, standing, walking, lying down, simply knowing this, that this is what establishes a present moment recollection. 
And John touched upon the other evening the many nuances of mindfulness, the aspect of it being protective, the aspect of it being an investigation, um, the aspect of it of being a way of reframing uh, the narrative, reframing cognition. But it all begins here. It all begins here in this simple knowing. It is what places mindfulness really at the beginning of many of the processes and constructions that continue to unfold in our experience. Nyana Panika described this as establishing mindful, mindfulness at the seed state of experience, the moments of contact, the moments when the eyes contact a sight, the ears contact a sound, the body contacts a sensation, the mind contacts a thought. Beginning to attend to these, these moments that are often so brief, before the onset of our liking and our disliking, our judgments and our associations and our reactions, beginning to establish mindfulness here. That's quite a challenge, isn't it? Because the movement from contact into construction, it's happened so quickly, doesn't it? So fast. But it's establishing, learning to establish mindfulness here, before we begin to tell the story about what we're experiencing. And we're asked to learn and to develop this capacity, and it it is possible. Please don't believe that this is somehow unattainable or impossible, because we see that part of the work of mindfulness is actually beginning to slow down these processes, slow down these constructions, to develop a wakefulness where we begin to see these moments when our personal world begins to arise and our personal world begins to be shaped and to envelop these moments with mindfulness rather than with habit. This interesting teaching the Buddha offered. He says, the, the world arises with contact. And what he's referring to here is the world, our, our psychological world, the world of our personal experience. The world arises with contact. With the cessation of contact, there's a cessation of the world. So he's not talking about the cessation of sight, sound, smells, taste, touch. But the cessation of this self-referential world based upon reactivity. He said the foolish pursue contact and the wise seek to understand it. This simple knowing that is cultivated is a quality of receptivity. It is a way of being present in those moments when consciousness is being furnished by the raw materials of sensory impression. When consciousness is being furnished by the the objects of our senses, of our the sights, the sounds, the sensations, the thoughts to simply know these and to know them as they actually are. This is a big ask. It's a big ask. It's challenging. 
we move so quickly into this self-referential mode about what that sight means to me, what that sound means to me, what that, how I'm interpreting that sensation, what that smell or that taste means to me, the kind of associations that are triggered by that thought. We move so quickly into this mode of liking and disliking, of wanting and wanting to get rid of. And the many, many journeys we make down memory lane, down the road, the pathways of association through which we come to believe we know something or we know ourselves or we know another person. We use often assumption or view as an equation with knowing. And what the Buddha is pointing to here is, of course, is a very, very different way of knowing. I mean, you see it here. Perhaps there's someone here that, that irritates you. They may, they may be doing something incredibly innocuous. They, they may be the person who always leaves their shoes in the middle of the walkway or you know, has a slightly heavy breathing process. And you see how quickly your irritation becomes who they are? How our reaction becomes who someone else is? We believe it to be so. We might be quite impressed by someone here. You know, they, they may be the, uh, the friendly face, the smiling face amidst the sea of grimness. And we, we seek them out. We seek them out, you know. There's the, I, I want to sit beside them at the dining table. You know, they're the ones who are looking good, you know. Um, do, do we actually see them? Or do we see our view about them? Some of you new to IMS, you know, may come in the meditation room. We have an awful lot of Buddha statues hanging around here, you know. And and you know you, you know do we do we open our our eyes and just see, or does it open the door to the narrative? You know, gosh, I didn't know I was coming somewhere Buddhist. You know, maybe they're out to get me. You know, maybe some sort of cult. You know, maybe it's a good idea to be Buddhist. You know, <laughs> we, we we actually don't. You know, it's just a statue. You know, but we begin to see how that movement just accelerates along these very very familiar pathways. Simply knowing teaches us many things. It teaches us to awaken the world. I always think of this as a kind of magic of mindfulness, the magic of simply knowing. How it has this effect of illuminating the world, almost awakening the world, to allowing us to, to see anew rather than through the eyes of what we have seen before, or through the eyes of association. Seeing anew also opens the door to the possibility of responding anew, rather than traveling the same tired pathways of habit or reactivity. This is beginning to cultivate the simple knowing, allows us to see our own minds, to read, our own hearts, to allow them to slow down to, and to slow down that movement, that transition from receptivity 
of knowing what is occurring. That transition from receptivity into the more active phase, the more active phase that involves a world of proliferation and reactivity, and then often that movement from that into the behavioral world of what we do with what is seen or felt or taste or touch, what we avoid. It allows a responsiveness to walk new pathways. You know, going back to that example of the person who we feel irritated by, how easily when we see with receptivity, we're constantly examining our views, constantly questioning our assumptions and our conclusions. And yet how quickly without that receptivity we move into this mode, this behavioral active mode of avoidance or judgment. It's not to imply in any way that somehow activity is without value. It is often asked of us. Activity is often what needs to follow on from receptivity, the ways that we engage with the world, the ways that we engage with other people. But it really allows us to see where is that activity actually arising from. Simply knowing is a quality of receptivity, I think, that allows the moment to speak to us, to reveal itself to us rather than us constantly telling the world and other people and ourselves how they are dismissing or having conclusions. You know, I often think the walking practice is really an exemplar of this. You know, you see, you know, if you're on your walking path and the mind is in more that kind of reactive mode, You know, you can walk up and down and we just tell the world how it is. You know, that's beautiful. That's ugly. You know, if I was in charge here, I'd move that over there, you know. Or, you know, why aren't they doing that, you know. You know, that it's almost like we keep telling the world what it is. We can go on that same walking path in a different mode of being, in a more receptive mode. And we see our way of being touched. The way that we are touched by the colors, the textures, the shapes, the scents. It doesn't mean we never act. If your job here at a different time of year was to work in the garden, you know, you would know the need to move into a more active mode. But it's intentional. It's more like, what does this need? What does this ask for? Rather than the world of impulse and reactivity. I came across this piece by Oliver Sacks. Many of you would be familiar with his writing. And he wrote this when he was convalescing from a leg injury. He said, after breakfast, I wandered out. It was a particularly glorious September morning settled myself on a stone seat with a large view in all directions and filled and lit my pipe. This was a new or at least an almost forgotten experience. I'd never had the leisure to light a pipe before or not, it seemed to me, 
for 14 years at least. Now suddenly I had an immense sense of leisure, an unhurriedness, a freedom I had almost forgotten, but which now it had returned seemed the most precious thing in life. There was an intense sense of stillness, peacefulness, joy, a pure delight in the now, freed from drive or desire. I was intensely conscious of each leaf, autumn-tinted on the ground, intensely conscious of the Eden around me. The world was motionless, frozen, everything concentrated in an intensity of sheer being. Now in this morning, although as though in the first morning of creation, I felt like Adam, beholding a new world with wonder. I had not known or had forgotten that there could be such beauty, such completeness in every moment. I had no sense at all of moments, of the serial, only of the perfection and beauty of the timeless now. This simply knowing is not an end in itself. But it plays a very central and I think a very crucial role in the development of understanding, in the development of insight, in beginning to learn what it means to see each moment as it actually is. It's the first significant change, perhaps, is the shift from this self-referential world to the clear, balanced, appreciative, economist world. It's a shift from a world that seems to revolve around, centralize around me, my fears, my hopes, my likes, my dislikes, into a world of non-identification, a way of being, seeing, responding, living. Each one of us, in every moment of our day, we, we live and we sit and we walk amidst an ongoing flood of sens- sensory impressions, countless moments of contact in every day, countless sights, sounds, sensations, thoughts, tastes, and, as we've mentioned, well, she's not in control of much of this, and, as we've mentioned, in truth, it's not very personal. You know, I saw someone wearing a T-shirt last summer. It says, actually, it is all about me. (laughs) And I think in in the light of mindfulness, we actually really begin to see, it's actually really not all about me. Um, That mindfulness actually rests upon that knowing. We see the way that identification is, is shaped through the, the liking and the disliking, the fears and the wanting, the for and the against. And this personalizes it all. Hmm? It makes it all about me. And it opens the door to a world of struggle and confusion and often pain. I think a simple knowing awareness is quite revelatory. It's deeply understanding that that none of us can choose. It doesn't matter how mindful we are. None of us can choose to have only pleasant sights and sounds and sensations and thoughts. 
none of us can choose that we're going to live in a way where the unpleasant will never touch us. And we really begin to see in the light of that knowing the role that trying to control the world of of conditions, trying to control all of that which is essentially uncontrollable, the role that that dedicated activity plays in creating turmoil and struggle. We come to know this. You know, we come to know this. You know, and, and it can be so subtle, those endeavors to create and rearrange the world of conditions in order to protect us, in order to protect me from that which I feel I cannot bear. I mean, we can see it, you know, in simple ways. You know, I remember here in IMS, you know, years ago, before we had all the white plates and cups, you know, we used to have this vast array of multicolored chip cups and, you know, all these inherited plates from people's grannies, you know. And, <laughs> and people would lie. It took so long to get to lunch, you know. Because people would be f- filtering through these stack of plates you know, as if my lunch is only going to be good if I've got that flowered plate that I had yesterday, you know. You know, we can sift through the cushions in the back of the hall, can't we? Looking for that perfect Zafu, you know. Not that one, not that one, not that one, that one, you know. Until we sit on it, you know, and then it's not the perfect Zafu, you know. But it's so subtle, isn't it, how we keep doing this in life, you know, as if we can just, uh, one day we're going to be successful. (laughs) You know, sometimes when it doesn't work out, you know, we've put so much effort into rearranging the world of conditions and it doesn't work out, we just think we haven't tried hard enough. You know, we get spurred on to be even more compulsive about it next time. It's a big insight. It's a huge insight to acknowledge the ungovernable ungovernable nature of the world of conditions and to somehow untie this belief system that my happiness depends upon the perfection of conditions. To untie this belief system that my capacity for peace and for joy rests upon controlling the world of conditions. It's such a liberating insight. First, we have to know what's going on. You know, we have to look at those subtle movements in ourselves. begin to see those subtle movements in our day where this is where our busyness lies. You know, that one more little arrangement. More importantly, I think, in the light of that knowing, we begin to discover there's a different way of being amidst this ungovernable world, amidst this uncertainty, this unpredictability, this world of conditions which isn't really out to to get me. We begin to discover there's a different way of being, a, a quality of calm abiding, a quality of receptivity, a capacity for non-clinging in the midst of all moments. We know how to live in this fragile human life rather than feeling compelled to avoid it. And we know that there is pain in this fragile human life 
but we also come to know that suffering can be released. Now, so this, this quality of awareness is a prelude, a forerunner to understanding that sometimes an understanding that is phrased as clear comprehension. What does mindfulness expose us to? It exposes us to a world of change and flux. And of course, on one level, we all know this. I don't need to tell you this. You know, it's not like you come here and it's the first time you've ever heard about impermanence, you know. It's not like we talk about change and you know, his eyes widen and think, gosh, you know, never knew that. You know. <laughs> of course we know this. But experientially, it's pretty hard to live in the light of the implications of impermanence, isn't it? It's pretty hard to really embody that understanding. And yet what we begin to see in the light of awareness is that the dynamic, the dynamic of each moment, the process of each moment, that every sight, every sound, every feeling, every thought, every touch is a process the breathing is a process. Body is a process. Isn't that amazing? Body's a process. Constantly changing. Mind is a process. Feeling is a process. No, we start to know this. We experience it. And we start to almost naturalize it in our bones. And it's an understanding that needs to be naturalized in our bones because it has such far-reaching implications that nothing is static, nothing is graspable, nothing can be pinned down, nothing can be summarized, nothing in a way can be known through the eyes of views or conclusions. I am a process. That's the most amazing liberating insight, that I am a process, constantly changing, constantly being shaped by all that I perceive, being shaped by what I grasp hold of. It is a knowing and an understanding that starts us to lay down, we spoke about it today, this this state of contention with the way things are, to begin to abide in a non-contentious way of being in all moments. It's a state of peace. This quality of awareness, this quality of knowing really opens the door to the three key liberating insights central in Buddhist and in human psychology. The insights that that liberate, the insights that bring suffering to an end, the genuine understanding of change, the genuine understanding of the instability of the world of conditions, the genuine understanding of how suffering and torment is born moment to moment, and the genuine understanding of non-self. These are experiential understandings that transform the shape of our mind. Which brings us to the second step of Nyanapanika's formula. First is to know the mind. Second step is to shape the mind. And I want to read you something from the Satipatthana Sutta where the Buddha speaks about this. 
And how bhikkhus or bhikkhunis does a bhikkhu abide contemplating mind and mind? Here a bhikkhuni understands mind affected by lust as mind affected by lust and mind unaffected by lust as mind unaffected by lust. He or she understands mind affected by hate as mind affected by hate. She understands mind unaffected by hate as mind unaffected by hate. He understands mind affected by delusion as mind affected by delusion and mind unaffected by delusion as mind unaffected by delusion. She understands contracted mind as contracted mind and distracted mind as distracted mind. He understands exalted mind as exalted mind and unexalted mind as unexalted mind. She understands surpassed mind as surpassed mind and unsurpassed mind as unsurpassed mind. He understands concentrated mind as concentrated mind and unconcentrated mind as unconcentrated mind. She understands liberated mind as liberated mind and unliberated mind as unliberated mind. I really encourage you to note the language in here. It's quite significant. It's not accidental. Because it is a languaging of non-identification. It doesn't say knowing my mind when it's so contracted, or it doesn't say knowing when I'm so greedy or distracted or aversive, nor does it lay claim to the opposites of, you know, I am so concentrated, my mind is so, so, so undistracted, my mind is so exalted. It's simply knowing how the mind is being affected, how the mind is being shaped in each moment, and knowing that the mind and the heart is being shaped in every moment. That shaping, in a way, gets articulated in language. That shaping, in a way, gets articulated in the stories that we tell ourselves about who we are. You know, it, it, it's like Paul Brock's a neuropsychiatrist. He even says, you know, I'm not telling the story about who I am. The story is telling me who I am. That's pretty important. The story is telling me who I am. I am, this sense of, this sense of identification is, is, is such a powerful impulse, you know, and it's like a life sentence, you know, I am this, I've always been this, I always will be this, I'm my thoughts, I'm my moods, I'm my emotions. In the teaching of mindfulness as a path to liberation, the Buddha takes a very, very different approach to mind takes a very, very different approach to, to heart. First of all, mind is, does not have an exemption from change. The heart does not have an exemption from process. 
The other thing is to recognize that the mind, the heart, really lives in a state of potentiality. That in that state of potentiality, the mind, the heart has always been shaped by our emotions, our thoughts, our habits, our moods. And you might just look right now. What is your mind being shaped by? Is it being shaped by boredom, by interest? Is it being shaped by tiredness? Is it being shaped by agitation? Is your mind right now being shaped by a particular thought pattern that's been going through? Just having a sense of what is the shape of your mind in this very moment. It's also recognizing that this awareness or this knowing is also a shaping factor because it's bringing into the process of our mind intention. It's bringing into the process of our minding, and this is actually a better way of saying it, you know, instead of saying mind in capital letters or flat, there's a process of minding going on. Hmm? Minding being shaped. Hmm? It's not a thing. If mind is a process, and there's a process of minding going on, knowing this is bringing in intention, it's bringing in an attitude. The moment that you turned your attention towards your mind, your minding of the moment, it's bringing in an attitude of calm, of curiosity, of befriending. But there's something more that's being brought in and is encouraged to be brought in in this teaching. And that is a quality of discernment. In this process of minding and shaping, there's a discernment about what is helpful and what is unhelpful. So it's not about what is good, and it's not about what is bad, but we're learn to, learning to develop that, that discernment about what is helpful and unhelpful. When it's wise to engage with skillful action, when it's wise to let something be. Example, you know, dullness. Hmm? Knowing is important. The dullness is dullness. Sometimes you look dullness in the eye and it starts to change because there's an aliveness in the intention and an aliveness in the knowing. Sometimes dullness is really intractable. And you, you bring that light of knowing, it doesn't seem to quite penetrate. And you see this is unhelpful because we didn't really come here to be asleep. So you say, this is unhelpful. Maybe it's helpful that mindfulness engages with skillful effort. I stand up. You look at a pain. Sometimes you look at a pain without knowing. Sometimes in that simple knowing, you see the calming of the aversion. And actually you begin to see the process of pain. Sometimes you need to change your posture. In the light of that, simple knowing. That, that, that awareness that, and that, that quality of curiosity is, is calming the impulsiveness, calming the reactivity that's most often concerned with how I get rid of this, how do I change these conditions, how do I control what's going on. And actually it's being able to ask the question, what does this need? What is actually helpful? 
Now this, this quality of awareness is really going hand in hand with this step of shaping. Knowing what is shaping the mind just now. Sometimes it's sufficient, that knowing, to calm the surges of reactivity and impulse. But it also comes to know that, that what awareness is doing, what mindfulness is doing, it's ceasing to feed. Ceasing to feed the impulses. Ceasing to feed the habit patterns. When there's no feeding, they begin to calm down. But sometimes it's, there is this engagement with wise effort. You know, there's some, a couple of months ago, I was, I was traveling every day for a week to teach at the university. And, you know, I went to catch my train. And, and I saw on the platform a person who, you know, I feel had not been very skillful in a project that I'm involved with. And I saw them and I, I just saw immediately, you know, I don't want to see them. <laughs> I don't want to see them. You know, and I noticed it all sort of shuffles down the platform, you know, so I wasn't getting in the same carriage, you know. I know eye contact, you know, they're not happening. You know, second day I turn up, they're there again. And I thought, well, I could do what I did yesterday. Or I could actually just turn towards them, see, see what happens here. And I realize how much I've got this person locked within this view, you know. But I still shuffle down the part where I'm getting a different carriage. The third day I turn up, just there again, you know. And actually I sort of remember the good things they did. Not only the difficult things they did, I remember actually the helpful things they did. I still shuffled down the platform, getting a different carriage. Next day I turn up, they're still there on the platform. And I thought, you know, this is really time to do something different here. You know? And that rather than kind of feeding these patterns of, of, you know, it's sort of okay, but I'm not really engaged, you know. I think, there's another path to walk here. So I see them and I say, oh yeah, there's still some difficulty there. But I can turn towards them and say, good morning, how are you doing? Just to see that that knowing and that engagement, you know, we should never imagine sati or mindfulness to be this sort of state of passivity. How you know the, the sati mindfulness is you know is part of this very big family. It's part of this family of metta, part of the family of compassion. You know, part of the it has an equanimity. It's got it's got this very extended family. You know, equanimity. You know, it's got a big family, but it's also got wise effort skillful effort and sometimes you know there, there's about this movement not about only a, about you know acting out our impulses there's something about acting out our understandings which can sometimes be a lot harder you know I often think you know it doesn't take much effort actually to act out the unskillful you know we don't have to really make a big effort to be aversive do we I think I'd work up some aversion here. Yeah, yeah. I said, we didn't take a lot of effort. You know, it doesn't take a lot of effort to be slothful, does it really? You know. It doesn't take a lot of effort to be agitated. How much effort does it take to actually embody insight? You know, how much effort does it actually take to embody our understanding? Because that's really swimming against the tide. And I often think it takes far more effort to embody the skillful than to act out our impulses. But this is kind of what, my, what mindfulness, what this path of awakening is asking us to do. 
It's asking us really to live our, our lives in the light of what we understand to be liberating and healing and freeing, rather than to live our lives in the light of actually what we actually do know to be unhelpful. Inclining our mind. Inclining our mind. Knowing the difference between recept- receptivity and passivity. And this, this, this word that John introduced of bhavana, of cultivation, I always think about how deeply important this is and actually how, what a difference it makes in our path. You know, I meet so many students who, who have equate this practice with work. You know, they use the words interchangeably. I'm working on something. You know, I'm working on my imperfections. You know, I recently had a student, he said it was the first time in 20 years, hadn't come into a retreat with an issue to work on. I think about what a joyless way of approaching practice this is. You know, turning up on the cushion, going to work. You know, chipping away at the rock face of imperfection. It doesn't end, by the way, but because by the, as long as there's a kind of selfing really subscribed to, it's always going to pick up new imperfections. That's the nature of the beast, by the way. It's always going to pick up a new portfolio of imperfection. So a new, a new, you know, a new portfolio to chip away at. I have to actually wonder if this attitude that equates this practice with work, I wonder how anybody sustains it. Because I think about what brings you, you know, how inspiring is that in the morning? Get up, I'm going to work on my cushion. <laughs> it's not really inspiring. Is it? Cultivation is something, and also this, this personalization of autonomy, this personalization of power that I'm going to work on my issues and resolve them. I, I don't think that's true. The Buddha puts another direction. He talks about cultivation. He talks about the cultivation of the lovely, the cultivation of the wholesome, the cultivation of the skillful, the cultivation of the liberating. You don't see in the text the invitation to go off to work. In cultivate, cultivate. And this is actually what does the relinquishing. You see in the cultivation of metta, it does the relinquishing of aversion. You see in the cultivation of calm abiding, it does the relinquishing of agitation. And I really encourage you to look at the orientations in your practice because one is far more joyful than the other. And actually how much we trust this because we live in a culture where the work ethic is so entrenched in us. You know, we believe to be worthy, you know, we have to be working on something, including working something out. Think about that orientation in your practice because this is a shaping. This is what we incline the mind towards. And as we've as already been said, what we frequently dwell upon becomes the shape of our mind. The shape of our mind becomes the shape of our world. What our hearts incline towards, this, our hearts, our minds, does become the shape, it becomes the shape of our heart and mind. It 
it is not through aversion, it's not through resistance, it's not through fighting or willpower that the shape of our mind changes from aversion, aversive mind to a mind of kind, kindness, from contracted mind to a mind of spaciousness, from a distracted mind to a mind of collectedness, from an unliberated mind to a liberated mind. And it's certainly not, it's not through willpower and it's not through magic. It's through sustaining that intention, that attentiveness to rest within the knowing, the shape of our mind begins to change. Be cultivating that unwavering commitment to, to awareness that the unhelpful patterns begin to fall away. It's a commitment to befriending that aversion begins to fall away. The commitment to wakefulness, the dissociation begins to fall away. And every time we remember to come back, and this is really a discipline of the moment, but it's a discipline of joy. Every time we remember to come back from our bouts of speculation, our bouts of explanation, our bouts of proliferation, we are remembering something too important to forget. The way in which transformation truly does lie in our hands. It's no easy undertaking because the moment that we begin to endeavor to be more awake reveals to us the deeply entrenched patterns of our own minds. To dwell on past and future, the attraction of our narratives, the almost unstoppable, unstoppable desire to fix things, to flee discomfort, to have a certain kind of experience. You know what? We often believe those patterns are the way to fix suffering rather than being the ways that suffering is perpetuated. You know, we often think of craving as being the way to, to fix suffering rather than being a cause of suffering. And this practice is asking us to question, you know, what I call the operational ineffectiveness of most of our habit patterns. And they're not operationally effective. They don't deliver. And except they, deliver, they don't deliver happiness. They deliver suffering. So we make this leap in a way to know the mind, to shape the mind, to liberate the mind. Now, to liberate the mind can sound a rather abstract concept. So frame it in two ways. What is the mind being liberated from? And what is the mind being liberated to? The mind is being liberated from the compulsions of aversion and craving. The mind is being liberated from the habit patterns that, that create suffering. The, mind, the heart is being liberated from li limited views of self. The mind is being, the heart is being liberated from the prisons of assumptions and conclusions. What is the heart being liberated to? To be the creative, responsive, fluid process it is, deeply collected in this moment. The mind is liberated to know the profundity available to us in spaciousness, in clarity, in kindness, compassion. Liberated to actually live a wakeful life. 
Thank you for your attention. If we could just have a moment quietly together and then we will have a walking period. Thank you for your attention. Um, so we have a walking period now, and then we'll come back at 8.45 for just a short sitting to end the day. <coughs> 